It's a joy to be with you in the presence of the Lord today as we gather to give attention to the Scriptures. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning, a passage in the midst of our ongoing series in the book of Ephesians. If you're just joining us this morning, maybe, maybe even for the first time, we're delighted to have you have you here. My name is Nate Sheridan. I'm delighted to be able to open up God's Word with you in what undoubtedly will be a pertinent text for each and every one of us in this, in this room. You notice the title, Christian, Be Angry and Do Not Sin. Be Angry and Do Not Sin. We are addressing today the subject of, of anger. In the song that we sang just a moment ago, Lord Jesus, think on me. Did you notice in that first, well, that first stanza, it gets to exactly the, the instruction that Tony gave us as we led into confession a moment ago. Lord Jesus, think on me. Purge away my sin from earthborn passions. From earthborn passions. Now, we, well, 21st century types in, in, in America, we, we use the word passion in a very positive way. We, we, tell, our, we tell our children, go, go do what you're passionate about. And we, we mean, you know, follow your, follow your dreams, you know, set your, set your sights high and, and let your heart run towards that which you're passionate about. And we mean that you have a drive for, that's something you have a desire for. It's, it's not what's meant when we sing it. Here, Lord Jesus, think on me with earthborn passions. Historically, the word passion means something that's inordinate, a passion that's sort of taken on a life of its, of its own. It's now outside of its boundaries uh, in the way that, that lust is outside of the boundary of, of appropriate sexual desire, the way that, that righteous indignation can, can become very quickly a passion of, of blowing your, your top or, or having a short fuse or, or something where an appropriate action at one level now grows beyond something that's appropriate. It's, it's come into the passions. It's being driven in Old Testament language by the gut, uh, being, being driven by the impulses of, well, what Aristotle would call our, our lesser nature. Um, the, the part of our the part of ourselves that that is um, given to simply giving in to impulses. We want to address that today. We're going to talk about anger. Now, some of you are saying, "I wish I had not come to church today. I wish we had not." I'm addressing this question today. Let me just let me just say to you, I I feel similarly with you in this. You know, one of the challenges of being a, a preacher is that. Sometimes when you're studying the Word of God, God gives you opportunities to live your message. And I feel that in a very particular way. Uh, even this morning, I was texting with a dear friend who is um, going to be in a difficult situation at a church today where there are earthborn passions that are very much alive in that congregation today. Um, it's all around us, isn't it? Anger. In all of its destructive forms, we can point in, in many different directions. And I imagine we could point inside the four walls of, of your home and mine. It's a sensitive subject. It really is. It touches us someplace very, very deeply. And I think undoubtedly if we could go back into our own memories, 
We have emotional memory around areas of, of great anger in our own lives or ways that anger has been expressed towards us, and we've carried hurt for many years around this subject. And what that means is there's a lot of sensitivities in this room when we talk about this subject of, of anger. So we need, God, we need God to help us. We need His help. We need His strength as we approach this word from Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, this morning. And so I, even before we read the text, can I ask you just to pray with me that the Lord would meet with us now? Let's pray to that end right now. Father in heaven, I'm aware that even with, with words of preparation, as I spoke just a moment ago, it has the tendency, at least in some of our hearts and our minds, to raise defenses, to raise, raise concerns. Lord, you know that's not my heart or attention. And I know that's not what you would desire. You want to bed down defenses. You, you, want, you want our hearts to be clear and open before your word. We, we want what we sung earlier, which is search me. We want you to come and, and search us out. We want you to reveal uh, anger. We want you to reveal unrighteousness. We, we, want, we want our hearts to be more closely akin to yours. And Lord, for that to happen, the Holy Spirit's got to be here. The Holy Spirit has to take our hearts in His, His hands, so to speak, and He's got to apply these, these rich words of, of truth to us. And so, Lord, would you now, in the way that only the Spirit can, can do, would you come and meet with every soul in this room? Those of us who have a tendency to stuff anger, those of us who have a tendency to blow up, those of us who think... Well, we don't do either, and we're always righteous in our anger, and that means we're really deceived today. No matter who it is that we are, would you come and unmask us, and would you come clothe us afresh, knowing that we have a Savior who has satisfied the extent of your anger towards us, and we have reason to hope. Father, hear that prayer, and we ask you to answer it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's look together. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. But let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, we're in this section, verses 25 to, to 32, which well, is a, in some sense, feels unusual for those of us who've been working our way through the book of Ephesians. Very, most of this book up to now has been about the doctrines of grace, the richness of who we are in Christ, 
Paul's been going on and on about theology and specifically our union with, with Christ, the salvation that we've received in, in Him. But as is true of the Apostle Paul in all of his letters, the latter half of his letter has to do with practical implications. Notice how verse 25 begins with, therefore. In, in light of all that you are in Christ Jesus, how then, great Francis Schaeffer question, how then should you live? What does it mean to live out the Christian life? In the verse, verses previous to this section, verses 17 to 24, a leading metaphor was given to us to describe the work of the Christian life, and it was a clothing metaphor. Paul says that we should put off our former manner of life, and we should put on the new life that is ours in Christ. That's really what the Christian life is. Your daily exercise of discipline in the Christian life is putting off the former manner of life and putting on the new life that is yours in, in Christ. And that's what we're doing as we look at these examples that are given to us in verses 25 to 32. These are really five examples in verses 25 to 32 of what we should put off and what we should put on. Last week, we looked at putting off falsehood. And we talked about putting on speaking the truth. And today, we're talking about putting off a certain type of anger. And we're talking about putting on another type of anger. And that's really what we want to explore. We want to explore what that means. Because, well, not all anger is, is created equal, so to speak. And the, the instruction that Paul gives us here in anger is really important that we get our categories right. And so as we look at this, really just verse 26, we'll allude to verse 31, but really verse 26 today, I want to just reflect with you mostly practically so that we can understand what it means to live um, with anger in the right sense and to cut out and remove anger in the wrong and sinful sense from our lives. Now because of that, I want to, I want to look at four things with you in these this well, this really one verse on this topic of anger. I want you, first of all, to be clear on the two types of anger. Really, two types of anger that are that are given to us and really implied here in in verse twenty six. I want you to see, secondly, the difference between the two types of anger. We got to distinguish them so that we're clear on on the shape and form and content and all of that with regards to these two types of anger. And then, thirdly. I want, you, I want you to see the source from which these two types of anger come. The source from which these two types of anger come. And I want to look lastly at the satisfaction that is given to us with regards to the anger of God in Christ toward our sin. I want to start with these two types of anger. It's really quite shocking the way that this verse begins, isn't it? Be angry... And do not sin. Really. So here's what you're to put on. Just straightforward. Anger. You didn't see that coming, did you? Be angry, but do not sin. And some of us are thinking to ourselves, how in the world could the Apostle Paul start out his instruction on anger with be angry? That's the command. It's in the imperative voice here in verse 25, meaning there is no way to be a righteous Christian, an obedient follower of the Lord Jesus Christ without some form of anger. Anger is necessary, even required, 
for holiness in the Christian life. Be angry, but do not sin. Now, some of us heard be angry, and, and we said to ourselves, this is impossible. There's no way that this could be true. Does he not know what kind of damage anger causes? Is the Apostle Paul unaware of how this kind of instruction could be used in the body of Christ, could be wielded as a weapon towards another? Well, let's remember who the Apostle Paul is. I mean, he's constantly being slandered, stoned, hung out to dry, killed. He's got the world's anger towards him at all times. He's speaking to persecuted people. Christians in the first century in Ephesus, I think Paul knows. I think he knows the damage that anger could do. I would argue he might know it better than you and me. Be angry, he says. And some of us are we are some of us are in the settled conviction right now that any form of anger expressed in any way is wrong. And so we can't in any way even inhabit the space. And then some of us in this room heard be angry and we said, finally. We felt very vindicated in that moment. Because we've long believed there's a very vital role for anger in the Christian's life. Well, who's right? Well, it depends. It depends on what we mean by anger. It depends on what Paul means by anger. And it's clear that Paul means two different things when he speaks of anger in this text. In verse 26, he commands us to be angry. But look on down to verse 31. This was the illusion. In verse 31, he says, let all wrath and anger be put away from you. So he commands you in verse 26 to be angry, and then in verse 31, he says, put away all anger. Which is it? Is Paul speaking out of both sides of his mouth? Well, no. He's telling you there that anger is not created equal. You can't color it with, with one color. It's, it's got dimensions to it. There's, there's two types of anger. What are the two types of anger? There's righteous anger that he wants us to put on as believers, and there's unrighteous anger that he wants us to to get rid of. Or, or to put it another way, there's godly anger and there's ungodly anger. There's godly anger, which means it's the kind of anger that's akin to the anger that God himself has. You see, God himself has, has anger. We see that throughout the, the, the scripture. And that's one of the things to note. If, if God is angry and God doesn't sin, then there's a possibility that we can be angry and do it righteously. And, and he's calling us into the righteousness with regards to, to anger. And he wants us to know there is a form of anger that the Christian must take up. And then there's a form of anger, ungodly, unrighteous anger, that we must be rid of. Now, it's really important, if we see those two types of anger then, to know the difference between them. To know the difference between them. Because over and over in the Bible, we see God, in terms of his action, in terms of his judgments, in terms of his relationship to creation gone awry, we see him hot. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for anger, the most common Hebrew word for anger, there's a number of them, but the most common Hebrew word for anger actually is an idiom as it describes God, and it, it means hot of, of nose. Think of flaring of the nostrils. That's what happens when you're, you're angry. Hebrew tends to be very visual in terms of its, of its language. That, that God in his anger is demonstrative. Like it's something that in, in a sense can be, can be seen, can be experienced. It has expression uh, to it. Even in, in Ephesians chapter 5, if you look on down in 
Ephesians 5 verse 6, you can see that Paul himself references this very anger or wrath of God. He's speaking of those who deceive with empty words. And the Apostle Paul says, those who deceive with empty words, verse 6 of chapter 5, the wrath of God is upon them. That's what Paul says. So just a few verses down from where we are, the wrath of God is upon them. Now, if we are made in the likeness of God, and we are, if we've been redeemed by, by Christ so that we're new creatures in Him, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us and the Holy Spirit is, is God, then the more in which we are shaped and formed by who God is, the more our character is crafted after the likeness of God, the more we should anticipate that our anger would be akin to His, would be righteous as His is. And that's really the point that Paul is driving home in verse 26. It's similar to the, what we see multiple times in the Old Testament. I was, well, I was thinking just a second ago as we were, we were seeing, leading into confession, search me, O God. You know where that comes, right? It comes from Psalm 139. And those are really, the, I mean, it's so pleasant, right, hearing Greg play it, and it's, it's wonderful, it's marvelous. The verses just before that read, read like this. I hate those who hate you, O Lord. I loathe those who rise up against you, O Lord. I hate them with a perfect hatred. Hmm. Do your prayers ever feel like that? Can we say that? That's David, you understand, speaking those words. I, I, I hate with a hatred that is akin to yours, O Lord. Now, how can David say that? Well, let, 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 me, let me give you a little bit of a way to think through, because I, what I want to do in distinguishing righteous and unrighteous anger is I want you to be able to do your own diagnostic on your, on your own heart when it comes to your, your anger. And I want you to think about it in, the, in this way. How do we know if our anger is righteous? How can we distinguish it? Well, here's a way. To the degree that our experience and expression of anger matches God's experience and expression to anger, to that degree, our anger is righteous. Let me say that again. To the degree that our experience and expression of anger matches the anger God experiences and expresses, to that degree, we can say that our anger is righteous. So is it enough then, if that's the case, is it enough then that we are just angry about the same things that God is angry about? Is that what I mean by that? Well, I actually, I complicated it by, by using the word experience and expression. I complicated it. Because some of us will sometimes feel very righteously angry about things that are going on in the world. Let's just think right now, in, in the pew, just think of that issue, that group, could be a political group, could be a social group, could be whatever. Think of how you get righteously angry about something that's going on in, in the world, right? And you think to yourself, this anger is appropriate because it's akin to the Lord's, what the Lord himself is loathing or angry about. And, and that, to a degree, I'm sure is true. But it could be that right beside your righteous anger is this thing called unrighteous anger. Even filtering in to your righteous anger is this unrighteous anger. And I think that actually Robert Jones does a great job in his book, Uprooting Anger, to give us these three criteria for righteous anger. And the first one is what you would anticipate. Righteous anger 
must react to actual sin and wrongdoing. It must react to actual sin in wrongdoing. In other words, it can be just something that we in our preference or in our opinions or in our perspectives don't like. It has to be something that's clearly revealed in the Scripture that's against and opposed the character and will of God. It's got to make it plain. That is an appropriately righteous anger. That's number one. But then he says this, and this, this is where it gets meddlesome. He says, righteous anger also focuses on God and his kingdom and not upon me and my kingdom. Now, now, how would we get underneath that for a second? Well, have you ever noticed that there are certain things, let's go back to that social issue or that cultural group or whatever it is, certain things that you get fight mad about, righteously so, and you feel it, you have reasons, you're compelled for it. And then are there other things that God is also angry about in the world? that don't really bother you, that don't really bother you. You're really angry about the distortion of sexual ethics in our time, but you're not very angry about the neglect of the poor. Because when you actually read the Old Testament prophets, God seems really upset about that. You see how quiet it got? You see how we can be selectively righteous, whereas God is wholly righteous. That in the midst of our righteous anger, all of a sudden, you know what's slipping in? The fact that we're righteously angry about things that we care about, which means that it might be more about us than about Him. It might be more about the life that we want to live, the kind of community we feel more comfortable in. It might not actually have to do much with righteousness at the end of the day. I think Jones is onto something there. That not only do we have to react to sin and the reality of God's word and kingdom, but we have to be not selective in the things that we are really going to labor for with regards to righteousness. We have to be, well, biblically global in our concerns for these things. But then he, he doesn't even stop there. He goes to a third thing, a third criteria for righteous anger. He says, righteous anger is also accompanied by godly qualities that express themselves in godly ways. So very simply, he's saying, godly anger stays self-controlled. Godly anger doesn't seethe, doesn't suppress, doesn't throw things, doesn't scream. Godly anger doesn't brood, doesn't act passive-aggressive. Now, righteous anger is, of course, confident, and it's, and it's bold, and it's unwavering with regards to its commitment to the truth, but it's measured, it's sober, it's earnest, it's, it's actually filled with the patience of God, who is patient towards us, even in His anger. Now, working through that, doesn't it make you wonder if you've ever been righteously angry? Like, oh, I thought it was doing okay until, I, until you got to messing around with all those things in this book. Well, you know, that's, isn't it fascinating the way that this particular verse comes across? Be angry and do not sin. Don't you notice that Paul can barely get the instruction, be angry out of this word where he's saying, now don't sin. Why do you think he does that so quick? 
Why didn't he say, be angry? Look at those things out there that are happening in the world. Can you believe it? Can you believe what's happening even in the body of Christ? This is terrible. And if you happen to have a problem, a few minor of you out there, yeah, don't sin when you're angry at those things. It's not how he sounds, is it? He says, be angry, don't sin, because I know where you're going. I know your heart. You know, more often in the scripture, when we reference anger from cover to cover, it's negative in its connotations. It's similar to James 1.20, which we read earlier in the service. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Do you know when you're watching the news and you want to throw something at the screen? You know that moment? Sure you do. Anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. That's what he's saying. And sometimes we are actually, we don't even realize it, in the, even though we are against the right things, so to speak, truly aligned with what God would be opposed to, we're opposed to it in the wrong way. We actually compromise and sabotage the righteousness of the issue itself by the unrighteousness way that we inhabit it, talk about it, emote around it, and act. And, and really one of the most remarkable things about this text is it's trying to, it's trying to distinguish righteousness and unrighteousness, but it's, it's driving it all the way down to our heart. You see, that's why it says in here, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Right? And basically, Paul, well, let's, let's put it this way first. Paul is not saying, you know, during the winter months by 5 p.m., you, you, need, to, you need to have the anger gone. Now, in the summer... In the summer, you get a few more hours of anger before. Right? That's not what Paul is saying. Don't be, don't be silly literal here. Catch the principle. What, what's Paul saying? He's saying it's never going to be healthy to hold on to your anger. I want you to think of something right now. Think of a moment of your anger that you held on to for hours and days. Did it do you good? Did you find it maintained righteousness? No. You never did. That's how fragile this thing is. That's how difficult this thing is. You, you can't stay in the place of really righteous anger, so to speak. If you, if you hold on to it, it's going to really, it's going to eat you alive. It's going to either... If you hold on to it, it's, either, it's going to go one of two ways. You're either going to blow up at someone else and you're going to cause total destruction or you're going to bottle it up inside of yourself and it's going to destroy you on the inside. He says, don't let sun go down on your anger because he actually cares about the righteous kind of anger that ultimately begets peace, right? The deeper peace, the right kind of peace. And what he's calling us to here is to really examine our anger, to analyze it, um, to acknowledge where it's righteous and then where it's mixed with unrighteousness and where it's wholly unrighteous and really doesn't have any unrighteousness in it. And the best way to do that is to really get to the source of it. Where does it really come from? Now, to do that, I want to remind you of the context of this, of this passage. You remember last week we looked at verse 25. We looked, at, we looked at verse 25, where it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, speak the truth. And we said that was an unusual, it's unusual from all the instructions that Paul gives. 
in this passage. Because notice he goes, be angry. He'll say, you know, don't steal. It's very imperative, active, present voice. But it starts out in verse 25 with the tense, having put away falsehood. It's something you've already done. It's definitively done. You've put away falsehood. And we ask the question, well, what's the falsehood he's talking about? Well, when you look at the Greek text, then you understand that there's an article before the word falsehood. The. You have put away the falsehood. Oh, so there's a particular falsehood that you're supposed to put away. What is that falsehood? We said it's the falsehood of idolatry. It's the falsehood that was told at the very beginning of time. The falsehood in the Garden of Eden in in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent said to Adam and Eve, you know, if you eat of this tree in the knowledge of good and evil, it will actually make you like God. God's really holding out on you. And they decided to trust God's word rather than, or trust the serpent's word rather than God's word. And they fell into sin. And this is the fundamental lie that is at the foundation of, of the world. It's a lie that all of us fall into. It's a lie that when we think that something in this world is going to give us what only God can give us, we've fallen into the lie of idolatry. And we do that all the time, don't we? Now, why would Paul move from that to anger? Just ponder that for a minute. Why would Paul start with having done away with idolatry, having done away with the lie at the foundation of the world, speak the truth, speak the gospel to one another, know who you are, know whose you are, speak the truth to one another. Why would he immediately go into anger? Well, I have a, I have a suggestion. You knew I had a suggestion. Never is our idolatry revealed more clearly than in our anger. Than in our anger. We've got to trace our anger down to what we're really serving. You know, one of the things that strikes me about about anger is how justified we feel when we're angry. I was pondering this week because maybe I got angry once. And as I got angry more than once, I went back, and because I'm preaching a sermon on anger, I thought to myself, it's a great time to repent. It's a wonderful time to work through this. And as I'm working through it, I realized, you know how rational anger is? You think of it as irrational, don't you? You think of it as just sheer force. That's what it feels like. But if actually you could slow yourself down and break down what's going on in your mind, you have all these reasons for why you're angry. All this evidence, all these arguments. Have you noticed this? You know, you know, I would never have done what I did unless she had done what she had done. And what she did was so much worse than what I had did, which is why my anger is completely justified and hers is completely irrational. Now, you're never going to say that quite that clear. That's exactly what's going on in the fight. That's exactly what's going on in the fight. You have reasons. You, have, you, you feel that your anger, no matter, no matter what it is, is justified. That what they have done is so little or so much more than what you have done, which is so little. Now, that idea of justification, I think, actually goes to the very foundation of the source. Very often, we think, and the reason we get angry, is the thing that we have based our life on, meaning, significance, comfort, approval, achievement, convenience, whatever it is that made us angry or made us mad, that's really what we're serving, you see. The Lord gave me another opportunity this morning. You know, we're moving to the building across the street, and I say, we're moving, we're in process. 
which means that some, of, some things are here and some things are, are there. Like paper is not there, but paper is here, but I need paper there when I'm printing my sermon this morning. And we got the printer over there, and then I pressed print, and the printer was out of paper. And I was very happy in that moment, just very, very happy. And I thought to myself, oh, this is, God is so kind, isn't he? He's so kind. Another opportunity to work through. Why, why was I angry? Was I angry because God is morally angry at printers that go out of paper? I was angry because of my comfort. Because it was the inconvenience. You know, so very often, even isn't it in our parenting, it's like that. We, we see our kids do something. It's wrong. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe we just don't like it. And we get angry. And then we make up reasons for why it was right to get angry at them. You ever been in that argument where you're making up reasons for, to make sense of why you're yelling? And then some point down the line you go, that was dumb. Do you see, all of that is exposing an idol, you see. That the source of our anger, when we, when we actually trace our anger down to our source, it's telling us that we've not really given up the falsehood, have we? We've not really yet found all of our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. Now, why would I say that? Because do you see, as you see the two types of anger, you see the distinction between the two types of anger, you see this, uh, this recognition of the source of anger, you've got to see what satisfies it. Do you know that the cross makes no sense without anger? It makes no sense without anger. If you've ever, if you've ever thought there's no way to be angry and righteous, then you can't embrace the cross. There's no way to embrace the cross because the Father is pouring out His wrath on his son. And why is he doing that? He is righteously pouring out his anger against all the wrongdoing of which you and I have unrighteously been angry at in all the things of the world. That's what's happening. He's satisfying the wrath of the Father for you. He's satisfying the wrath of the Father for you. Now think of this. Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? You, you, remember, you remember the debt? Remember the debt that the man had that he brought to the king? Millions of dollars of debt to the king. And he said, king, there's no way I can, there's no way I can pay it. There's no way I can pay it. And the king, king said, you know what? I forgive you. I forgive you debt. And do you remember what the man did? The man, the man left and he found another person with a lot less debt that owed him. And he demanded it of him. He demanded it of him. He said, you know, I'm not going to let you. It puts him in debtor's prison until he pays the debt. Do you know that's actually what we're, what's happening when we're unrighteously angry at one another? You've been completely forgiven, you understand. All the, the record of wrong has been satisfied against you. Jesus has received the entire blow of the Father's anger on your behalf. How are you going to create petty arguments as if it's okay for you to hold anger against another? Do you know, the very heart of bitterness is that, isn't it? It's already, it's already assuming the judgment of another person before the judgment is due. You know, that's why you can't hold on to anger 
long after the sun has gone down. Because if you do, it's as if you pass judgment on them. You ever written off a person? You ever considered a person unredeemable? You ever given up on someone for the way that they've treated you? Now, praise God, God's not like that with you. What would it look like if you and I were more like him? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, in one sense, I guarantee it in your life that there is more anger that you need that you probably don't have. It's called righteous anger. And there's less anger that you have that you don't need, and it's called unrighteous anger. That's true of, I think, probably most of us in this room, if not all of us. And the only solution to beginning to take up the righteous anger and let go of the unrighteous anger is to identify the source and take it to the one who has satisfied it. Take it to the one who has satisfied it. Right now, I don't know if you blew up last night. I don't know if you've come in Sunday morning seething. I don't know what it is. But here's what I know if you're in Christ Jesus. The record of your unrighteous anger has been nailed to the cross. You owe it no more. Praise be to God. And that has happened because Jesus took the blow of the righteous anger of God for you. How can we continue to be angry unrighteously? We must release our anger, shouldn't we? And pray for the holy and righteous anger of God to be satisfied in its ultimate sense at the great white throne judgment that's coming. When at that point we will know every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Be angry, my friends. And do not sin. Because the anger of your unrighteousness has been satisfied at the foot of the cross through the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, I pray that even now you'd be doing fresh work in the lives and hearts of us as your congregation, your people. You'd free us from unrighteous anger. And you would welcome us into a kind of righteous anger that is akin to your anger. That it would match in experience and expression. But Lord, let us know, even in our zeal for such, we're going to mess up. And, and the cycle of repentance is going to be needed over and over and over in our lives. Lord, help us rest there. Help us to know that. Help us to be humble in that. But Lord, we need more of what it is you've called us to in this text. Let us not give an opportunity for the evil one. But let us walk in the righteousness that is already ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Until all anger of the unrighteous kind is no more. And all that is left is the forgiveness and the joy of your people in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, that is the end. That's already been secured in Christ. Let us lean into that end and walk by its light even now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.